Welcome to Infinite Leaders Live. I'm Lewis Keynes and our why is simple, to be better educators and to be better humans. We want to support and encourage infinite learning, regardless of role, rank or responsibility, for everybody to be willing to listen and learn. I'm joined by my pal as ever, Alan. And Alan, we've been looking forward to this one. We've been after this lady for a while, haven't we? <laughs> <laughs> She's a hard woman to catch. Uh, thank you, Lewis. Uh, really looking forward to, to diving deeper into understanding how leaders with an infinite mindset translate this across to their teams. We want to focus on the things you don't get taught at university, any courses, real life lessons from real life people with real life experience. And we're learning as we go through and we practice what we preach. So please tell us if there's anything that you feel we can improve or you want to see on future episodes. Equally, if there's something that you feel we're doing well and you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a review and, and a nice five-star uh, little tick as you go as well. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on YouTube and all podcast platforms now, as well as at theinfinitelearners.com. Um, and Alan and I are also um, on Twitter with our, our, our ramblings and our raves. So let's listen, learn and share. Um, and Alan, shall we introduce our guest? Yeah, uh, great to have Julie Stern on the show today. So get your paper and pen ready. There's going to be some absolute gems of wisdom today. Now, Julie Stern is a three-time best-selling author of Tools for Teaching Conceptual Understanding, Elementary and Secondary Editions, and Visible Learning for Social Studies. Uh, passion is synthesizing the best of educational research into practical tools that support educators in breaking free of the industrial model of schooling and moving towards teaching and learning that provides and promotes sustainability, equity, and well-being. So, so welcome on the show, Julian. Tell us a little bit about your journey, please. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, guys. What an honor to be here with you. I've been following your Infinite Leaders uh, and Infinite Learners website and blogs. Uh, I think what you guys are doing is just absolutely fantastic. Uh, so a little bit about my background. Um, I, I was a social studies teacher for many, many years uh, in the States. And, and then my husband joined the Foreign Service. Uh, and so I, move, I started moving all around the world with him. Um, in, his, in his career. So that's what kind of got me into doing more training abroad and where I met you guys at British School Manila. Um, and so uh, I was director of curriculum before the, he started in the Foreign Service. And that sort of opened me up to all the other disciplines, including PE, uh, which you guys are, are head of, and um, mathematics, science, et cetera. And so I, in designing curriculum and leading a curriculum team, I was really drawn to the work of Lynn Erickson, who is sort of the godmother of concept-based curriculum instruction. Um, and I published my first two books, Tools for Teaching Conceptual Understanding, the elementary and secondary version, as part of the concept-based series. Um, and so I've always had a passion for building that conceptual understanding. And then uh, sort of more recently, I've been into more cognitive science. So if you if you look at sort of the 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 scientist point of view, they're not going to say concept-based. Um, and so we'll talk a little bit about that. But my passion is transfer. How do we get students to apply their learning from one situation to another situation? Um, and so that's that's what I'm currently working on right now is a new book called Learning That Transfers, really looking at curriculum design um, with a focus on transfer. I think a lot of times we hope our kids will transfer. As you guys uh, have talked about before, you want your, your uh, kids in, your, in the PE programs to go on to lead these healthy lives um, and how how well are we doing that so we want to just really provide that that some concrete steps that teachers can take to promote transfer Julie tell us why why the transfer is so important for young people 
Yeah, so I mean, there's so many reasons, but the, the main reason is because of the pace of change that's happening in the world. We can't possibly teach kids all there is to know in a, sort of a K through 12 um, school system. We know that. We know we are, we are, in, we are taking in um, terabytes of information, which just means a lot of information, a lot more than, I say, our grandparents' generation. And so uh, the, gone are the days where the teacher knows everything and the teacher just needs to teach it to the students. Um, we don't know what the future is going to look like. So we have, to, we have to prepare our kids to be able to look at a situation and figure it out. Um, we can't just say, you know, we didn't teach you this in school, but you're able to figure it out. Um, that's really what, why it's so important. That, that what you mentioned there about, you know, the pace of change, there's so much information. I think we've all felt a little bit like we don't have enough bandwidth sometimes, you know, to take in everything that's thrown at us, especially during a time like lockdown. Mm-hmm. What, what, what kind of tips and advice can you have to, to, to really prioritize that transfer and focus on what's important or even better for, for children to be able to, to recognize which transferable skills are really important? Yeah, so you know, the main thing about transfer is really complicated, but you know, we, I try really hard to, to sort of make it sim- simplified for, for teachers. The main thing to understand about transfer is that we're everything that, every time that we learn, we're comparing what we already know to the new situation. And transfer, every time that we learn something new, we're transferring, we're saying, this is what I already know, here's the new situation, how does the new situation either match or, or is different from what I already know. And so what we have to do is help our students to be able to see what are the similarities to the new situation. And so that's why concepts are so powerful because here's the thing, when we're transferring to a new situation, we're not looking at the superficial features of whatever the situation is. We're looking at the deeper underlying structure and that's why concepts are so powerful. So for example, just a classic example I love to give is, if you're teaching kids, young kids, young children about survival, living things, habitats, you're looking at um, ecosystems, maybe like rainforests, deserts, and comparing one ecosystem to another ecosystem. Well, they're not looking at the surface, the superficial features would be, if we're comparing a desert to a rainforest, for example, the superficial features would be, okay, the desert has sand, uh, the rainforest has a lot more trees, but the, the, the deeper features are things like survival, living things, food sources, circle of life, uh, food chain. That's the underlying structure. And so if we can get to those conceptual underlying structures, students are able to look at a new situation and see how their prior experience applies. So basically students are making comparisons and, and working out where their current knowledge can apply in a new situation. Exactly right. And so in the research, it's called analogical reasoning because comparison is analogy, is, is comparing. Um, but yes, yeah, you're essentially just comparing it. And so what we, what we try to do is first help teachers get out of those sort of little details. So for example, for you guys, the, the details would be the exact sport, volleyball, basketball, etc. cetera. Um, but there's some underlying things that no matter what you're doing in PE, decision-making, teamwork, collaboration, which you guys have talked about, those are the underlying pieces that apply no matter what the situ- the specific situation is. Yeah, I, I, I love that thought, Julie. And I, I'm interested in just diving a bit deeper. When was your tipping point? When did you think, that you know what, this is the way forward? And there's been a lot of talk recently how education is still almost stuck in Victorian times. It's not actually changed mm. When mm. was your tipping point? I think I have a series of tipping points. Um, And so I think that for me, one happened when I was about 16 or 17 years old, when all of my colleagues were 
all of my friends were deciding what college to go to, deciding what major to major in. Um, I didn't know, I, and, and I didn't know, I didn't have many sort of career choices presented to me. And uh, for some strange reason, fate, God, I don't know what, the librarian of my school handed me this little, tiny little book called, uh, it's, it, it's, the title is, Are You Out There, God? Not to be confused with, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. But are you, are you out there, God? It's written by a nun who ran uh, Covenant House, a nonprofit in the Bronx in the 90s. And I thought being a teenager where I was from, this very small town in Southern United States was hard. But I had mom and dad, we never had to worry about food. We were a very stable family. Um, and I thought being a teenager was hard. And I read this book about kids who have to go through poverty and what it's like that they have to earn money sometimes in very, very dangerous ways um, in order to, to eat. And so I just, at that moment, that was a moment where I said, you know what, I'm gonna help teenagers. I'm, I'm gonna dedicate my life to teenagers because being a teenager is hard. And I wanna dedicate my life to kids who, teenagers who, who have a much harder life than I had. Um, that was sort of my first tipping point. And so I went into becoming a teacher. I thought I wanted to be a social worker, but in college, uh, I, in, at university, I started looking at the power of education to really um, empower kids and, and help them to lead meaningful lives. And so I became a social studies teacher and I w always wanted kids to participate in democracy. And uh, so that's, that was kind of my, my why moment. I wanted kids to participate in democracy. I wanted them to look at the problems in their community and work to make them better. And so what I was trying to do as a social studies teacher is basically teach conceptually. I just didn't have the language for it. So when I came across Lynn Erickson's work, I said, this is what I'm trying to do. I want my students to see power, authority, participation, um, all of those concepts, all those transferable concepts. When we study one time period in history, when we study one situation in the world, uh, I want them to come up with these transferable ideas. And so that was sort of um, the other tipping point was so, so a big that part world. in that then was seeing seeing life through the lens of somebody else through these teenagers mm -hmm. in poverty and, and trying to empathize mm -hmm. with them and, and you also touched upon um, you touched upon democracy as well how important mm -hmm. is that link between empathy and democracy especially in in today's world with everything that's going great on great question enormous 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 and i think uh you know and most recently my most recent book was published with john hattie doug fisher and nancy fry which was a another tipping point moment for me um this morning for social studies being mentored obviously by doug fisher nancy fry john hattie was amazing a highlight of my career um and the things that i learned from them uh, you know, Nancy Fry says a hallmark of deeper learning is for students to interrogate what they understand to be true. And this is essential for social studies in particular, uh, for, for anything where we're trying to um, live together in a pluralistic society. We, life is complicated. These issues are complicated. What we're dealing with in the United States with police brutality, what we're dealing with all around the world with the coronavirus, it's not as simple as should we wear masks, should we not wear masks? Should we open schools, should we not open schools? Should we protect the economy, should we not? Should we protect health? You know, people sort of put it on this in this binary line of either this or that. But you know what, nobody's right in e either of those scenarios. It's really complicated. And so the idea that we can put ourselves in another person's shoes, that we can look at things from another person's point of view is essential for a democracy. But it's also essential for relationships. Like you, you guys know, relationships are hard. You guys are friends. 
colleagues. You're starting this business entrepreneurship together. I don't know if you've already had tense moments, but you will. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, You know, sometimes um, I'm living with my parents, with my husband, with my kids, which is, you know, there could be tense moments among all of those dynamics. And sometimes if I'm, I'm kind of upset about something, my mom will say, what's wrong? And I'm like, you know what, mom, just relationships are hard sometimes. Um, and so the ability to, I'm trying to teach my young kids right now, like, can you look at this from mommy's point of view? Uh, right now, you're asking me to do something, but what am I currently doing? Something that you asked me to do five minutes ago. So, you know, pause for a second. Let me finish this thing. Um, and so really the ability to put ourselves in other people's shoes is essential for democracy and, the democracy and for life. part of that, I think it's really interesting because empathy is a, a huge part of, of being able to be democratic, but at the same time, democracy in many parts empathy. So, so what, what, kind of, what kind of education to, can we give to children and to young adults that are, that are going through that, listen, I'm right, you're wrong sort of phase where everything's black and white, there's no gray. Where, where, how can we point out that there, there is a little bit more gray than people think and, and how do we work through those tense moments? It, it, it isn't that you're right and I'm wrong and, and if I'm wrong, you, you could still be right and, and mm. I could still be wrong. How, how do we try and identify that empathy is needed to, to really just show that that gray is a little bit bigger? Uh, that's a great question. So what we've, what my team and I, my co-authors and I working on this next book have tried to do is sort of oversimplify the, the, the complex process of learning, the complex process of cognition. And so we have these three steps. You acquire understanding of individual concepts, you connect them in relationship, and then you transfer them to multiple situations. And so I think empathy is a concept. So we first need kids to understand what is empathy? So you do some concept attainment activities. The best way, because all learning is basically transfer, is comparing what we know to what we don't know. Uh, it's great to give students examples and non-examples of whatever it is you're trying to teach. So I, you know, you can make up scenarios, or you can find little videos where there's an example of empathy and there's an example of a lack of empathy, and have students sort of have a conversation about what are they noticing to really understand the word, the concept, empathy, um, and then when you get to deeper learning, you start to connect those concepts. So what's the relationship between empathy and fairness? What's the relationship between empathy and sport? Um, so when you start to connect them in relationship, that's when you're doing deeper learning. That's when you come up with those principles and those insights. Um, so, and, and you explore those in specific contexts. And so I, I, I am encouraging teachers to, um, t- to use social emotional learning to sort of kick off the next school year to teach sort of this process. How do we acquire understanding of single concepts, connect them in relationship and transfer them to multiple situations. So, you know, I just look at those cool videos you find online. I'm sure you guys have seen, uh, I hope you've seen the, the ninja uh, course for squirrels that some uh, former NASA scientist has, has built in his backyard, um, really looking at failure, really looking at learning, growth. Those squirrels demonstrate resilience. They demonstrate heart. They demonstrate, you know, so many different things. So looking at those really cool videos as a way to have conversations about uh, whatever it is we're trying to teach, uh, social emotional learning, empathy, um, learning from mistakes, growth mindset. You know, you can use types, those types of videos to have a conversation with kids, have them think about a time in their lives where when was a time in your life that someone didn't show you empathy and how did that make you feel 
um, those types of, of questions are, are the sort of context where students are transferring their learning how to deepen their learning. How important is that, attaching emotion to it? Because that, that's the question that for, for, for me would get maybe a, a child's attention. It is where, it, you know, Damien Hughes talked about it in our chat with us um, last week that research is sometimes me-search. You're more interested mm. in it if it relates to you. And how does that emotional side of learning and, and that uh, putting yourself in that feeling situation going to change children's perspectives and maybe allow more empathy to be, um, to be learned? Yeah, well, I think you hit on a couple things. One is prior knowledge and the other one is emotion. So students... Uh, we have to acknowledge that they come to us with with um, understanding about the world and so you know you can say when is if if we're saying okay we're teaching volleyball and how many of you have experience with volleyball well none of you you know or one of you you know um, but we could say you know what volleyball is really about it's about teamwork it's about working together it's about uh, foresight it's about keeping your eye on the ball how many can we think of a situation in your life where you've had to use foresight where you've had to work together as a team you know when we go to concepts we can honor the prior knowledge that students come the prior experience that students come to us with and so I think that's you know one of the major things that I try to emphasize and then your second piece is emotion you know you guys if you've attended any of my webinars you've attended my workshop back uh, a couple of years ago when I was at, at a BSM, uh, you know that I always like to show different videos or different um, sort of blow your mind kind of, uh, kind of context, kind of experiences. And I think that that is an essential piece as well, that we do, we do want to capture students' attention, but the, the, it's in the service of learning. Sometimes I think we get uh, into the sticky point where we're trying to capture students' attention in order simply to motivate them, simply to engage without thinking about the learning. So let's make sure we keep learning front and center when we're, we're tapping into the emotions. Yeah, fully agree, Julie. Um, just back a peg or two, I'm interested in, in, in family and obviously I've got children myself and sometimes find that, that the work-life balance, as sometimes we call it, difficult. How, how do you deal with that as, as a mum where you're a very busy, very busy woman writing books? How do you balance your, your family life and, and what are your core values? That's a great question. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I think, you know, definitely family is enormous for me and I'm making sure that, um, that the time that I have with my kids, I, you know, last year I traveled in 20, 2019, I traveled um, pretty much every three weeks and I have a four and a six year old. Um, the only way that was possible is with an incredibly supportive husband, incredibly supportive parents. And of course I had a nanny, <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, she, and she's, she's phenomenal. And so, you know, shout out to all the people who care for children whenever working moms are, are on the road. Um, but it was, it was really hard. And so what I tried to do was make sure that I, my time with them was super, super quality. So for example, um, when I was home, if I came back from a trip, um, and they wanted to play a game before we left for school. Well, I think a lot of moms would, with their schedule so hectic, they would be like, no, we cannot play a game. We have to get out the door. We have to go to school. I would say, you know what? I'm gonna sit on the floor and play this game with you. So what if you're late to preschool and kindergarten? Um, and, you know, and, and I have the time because I don't, you know, I, my schedule is flexible when I am home. And so I think it's for us, for us busy parents, it's, it's making sure that when we're home, we don't have the phone, we're not checking email, we're not on Twitter, uh, we are with, 
the technology is put aside and we're focused on on the kids and making sure that we have that quality time. And so I just, I constantly reconfigure my schedule. I constantly reconfigure my priorities. Um, you have to let some stuff go. Some stuff has to be good enough. I fight perfectionism a lot. Um, and so really sort of saying, you know what, uh, this isn't this project I'm working on isn't perfect, but it's pretty darn good. And so I'm going to leave it and I'm going to go play with my kids. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's, that's a big, the big aspect of it. So I'm sure your family life is, is front and center on your core values. What, what drives you, Julie? What's your, what's your real values when it comes to being uh, a leader and a mom and a, uh, an educationalist? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, I think, there's so many core values, but I think what's, what drives a lot of it is is trying to make sure that as many people as possible can live meaningful lives, and and somewhat that that is up to them to determine what that means. Um, and so I like the concept of self determination, the concept of of people becoming who they want to become. Um, and so I try to practice that a lot with my own kids. Uh, you know telling them, you know, you could say you can be anything you want to be, and then you sort of communicate these other values. And so it's really about, um, about trying to let honor my kids as human beings, um, honor everybody that I come into contact with as human beings who are, who have their right to, to their own self-determination. Um, and I think the other, as a leader, the other value that really drives me is integrity. I, you know, I, I really, you, as you guys, I'm sure have, you find yourself in sticky situations um, a lot and, and you have to act with integrity, even if nobody's watching. Um, and so, you know, I don't know if you know this famous quote from Michelle Obama, uh, take the high road. Um, but I use, I use that a lot. When, when people do things to me that I find to be underhanded, I find to be mean, I've spirited, I find to be unfair. Um, I'm always sort of repeating in my head, you know what? Take the high road. You get an email, it, it makes you mad. Um, you take a deep breath and you say, I'm going to take the high road. I'm going to do the right thing. Um, and so that, that is, is enormous for me. And there's <laughs> multiple opportunities to, to practice taking the high road for sure. Yeah, I think every teacher can uh, empathize with you there without a shadow of a doubt. Um, tell us about a time where maybe you've got it wrong, Julie, um, uh, and, and you've, you've made a mistake or you've had a really challenging period. Hmm. That's a great question. I think as, as a leader, the hardest for me was when I, when I had a lot of people who were lateral to me. So when I was director of curriculum, I was director of curriculum for a network of four schools and all of the principals of those schools were even to me. So nobody's decision trumped the other person's decision, right? And so that's hard. I'm sure you guys have been in similar situations where, um, you know, you're, you're, you're both responsible, you and other people are both responsible for something, for, you know, for education of kids. And so especially when it comes to assessment, um, I think that my biggest sort of mistake was uh, when I first took over the role of director of curriculum, I was really into transfer. I really wanted students to transfer. I really um, still do deeply believe to my core that the, 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 the assessment has to be a task the students have never seen before because otherwise we don't know if, if it's simply recall of whatever it is. So if we're trying to measure higher order thinking and we're trying to measure students' ability to transfer their learning to new situations, the situation on the assessment has to be new. And so when I really got it wrong, uh, sort of the, the number one thing that I can think of when you ask that question is I, I designed some really, with a huge team, I designed some really great assessments uh, where they were transfer tasks. And uh, 
the students did not do well on them <laughs> because we had not built a culture of transfer. You know, we, we sort of said, okay, we're studying you know, World War II and now here's the assessment is gonna be on, on uh, the war on terrorism. So figure it out. Um, many of the students did do well, but by and large, it was hard for them because we had not transferred previously to this assessment. We had not built a culture of transfer. And so now that's, I mean, what's great, it was a great sort of mistake in that um, now we make it very explicit and crystal clear that you build a culture of transfer, you have students practice transfer. It, it made me design all kinds of uh, prompts for students whenever they encounter a new situation. Here, here's a question you can ask to scaffold that transfer experience. Um, and so, I think that that sort of mis misstep was, taught me a lot, and and now my work is much better for it. Yeah, just, just go, on. go on, Alan. Yeah, I, I just want to pick apart there. I mean, we've we've talked with 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 guys from the Green School in Bali. I'm sure you're aware of uh, their approach. We, we've talked to people who are really keen on exams and are very much driven down qualifications. Just hearing what you're saying there about. Uh, giving them something they've never seen before where they've got to transfer over their skills. How can we get that in, in the education of tomorrow so that they're not just rote learning and spilling off facts that they've learned and make universities actually accept those kinds of assessments rather than the standard SATs and GCSEs and IB? It's a great question. Uh, so my my hope is that our next book will become, you know, comparable to UBD Understanding by Design will be will be taken on by schools all over the world as uh, a focus on transfer and, and designing learning where students um, are, are capable of transferring their learning to new situations. And so what I do when I talk with with uh, with teachers, I, I want them to see that transfer is along the spectrum. And so you can think of Perkins and Solomon are the two researchers most famous for, for researching um, transfer in education. And what they, what they say is there's what they call near and far transfer, basically uh, fancy words for similar situations. So we go from one situation that, to a new situation that's re relatively, they're relatively the same to increasingly dissimilar situations. And so if you think about a lot of the assessments, so um, the, the, the diploma assessments for our international baccalaureate, um, the AP in the United States, a lot of assessments are simple transfer. Yeah. Um, they, they're, they're slightly different than, than what the student, the way in which the student presented, was presented this information in class. And so we do, so transfer is essential, even if it's simple transfer. Now there's some assessments that are straight, strict recall. Um, but for the most part, the question is gonna be worded differently than the teacher worded it. And students will have to figure out what is the question asking me. And so in a lot of ways, I sort of start with, look, if you, if you take on what I'm saying, students are gonna get better results on those exams, um, it, period. And so I think that's, that's the thing that I, I have to sort of, I show lots of studies of how when we organize curriculum conceptually and we focus on transfer, students do better on these assessments. And so, you know, you don't have to, if you still are really um, worried about those assessments, don't worry, it, it's gonna be fine. Um, I think if we swing the pendulum to uh, sort of dump, you know, dump the, the learning outcomes and, and just start getting kids to sort of do critical thinking, uh, the assessments, they will go down on the assessments. And so um, I think with my approach, the, the content is still plays a pivotal role um, and so students still will still do well on those assessments. 
but you're absolutely right. I mean, it's going to take, you know, we're seeing it, we're seeing it uh, already at University of California said, you know, we're no longer going to take these, these entrance exams. Um, we're seeing a lot of universities make these steps. This is what happens in, in pandemics, by the way, as a social scientist, I have to just uh, point out that, you know, pandemics come, the Black Plague is one of the, the reasons that, that spawned the Renaissance. Um, that when these sort of big catastrophic events happen in human history, it spawns all this creativity. And so we're seeing that now, it's exciting stuff. And I think if, if people embrace it, then you're gonna be on sort of the right side of history. If you fight up against it, you know, what will the history books say about you uh, in, in 100 years? Yeah, it's, it's a great time to, to stop and, and, and try and look at how we can all work a little bit more intelligently. You, you mentioned earlier, um, you, you talked about um, social and emotional aspects of, uh, of, um, of teaching and, and, and curriculums being really important when children go back to school. And you just mentioned the pandemic there. Maybe a really good example of a, a far transfer. Nobody could have possibly put themselves in a situation of being locked in their houses for four months. How important will those social and emotional aspects of learning be in August, September when schools go back? And, and what can teachers do to best support those children yet still meet the demands and the rigor of teaching a curriculum? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that should be paramount. I, I made a little video that I put out for parents um, uh, about six weeks ago that just said, look, uh, as a fellow mom, I'm here to tell you that the number one thing I'm focused on right now is my students' social emotional well-being. Um, their ability, and, and you know what, the best way to, to teach that is to model it. Um, right now, we're all, we're all experiencing anxiety, we're all experiencing everything that comes with uncertainty. A lot of people are experiencing um, job loss. And so modeling for our students, when life throws you lemons, you know, how, how do you handle it? Um, and so I, I, in that video, I said this, I still, I still really believe it. I say to my kids, you know what, mommy needs to breathe. And I just take a deep breath in front of them so that they can see everybody gets overloaded. It's normal. Um, and, and we need to take a deep breath. We need to sort of get out a whiteboard or a blank piece of paper and brainstorm some options. Um, whatever it is we want to teach our kids about when life gets hard, what do you do? Um, and now is such a great opportunity to, to show that to our students. And so I really feel like what we're doing with the, the learning transfer model, acquire, connect, transfer, is a way to teach our kids to be adaptable, to be able to encounter new situations in life and say, what do I, what, what concepts live here? What's present in this situation that I already have an experience with? I have, everybody has experience with, with failure. Everybody has experience with emotional sort of overload and worry, uh, sadness, um, confusion, you know, that's what we're all experiencing right now. Every single human on earth has experience with that. And so how do we use, harness our students' experiences to help them to make these sort of big principles in their brains where when life gets hard, these are the steps that I take to, to sort of keep going. Um, I would use social emotional learning to sort of introduce um, acquire, connect, transfer, and then I would organize my curriculum around that acquire, connect, transfer. What are the most essential concepts and skills that my students need this year? And I'm going to focus in on those. Yeah. So, so, so the idea of emotional literacy and building a, a bank of being able to recognize feelings and understand them and, and put them into different contexts or past experiences. Yep, that's exactly right. Yeah, one of our favorite sayings, Julie, is you, you only know what you know. Mm. And uh, certainly 
uh, we've had a few questions from from people around the world saying, "Well, our kids they 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 can't do this this concept based learning because they're really low ability." And I'm, well, we're trying to say it's, it's not about ability. And I wonder if you could just talk us that it's, it's quite an inclusive philosophy. And if you could just expand upon that, I think it would really hit home with a few people. Oh, I I'm so glad you asked that question because where I was director of curriculum in Washington, D.C. was a school of low-income students, a school where we accepted students 6th through 10th grade, um, who by and large were reading several grade levels below, several grade levels behind when they entered school. And we took them, uh, I always share this story when I'm doing sort of in-person professional development, we took these kids to uh, the decathlon of social studies competitions called the We the People, where constitutional scholars uh, and college law professors questioned them on their, their knowledge of U.S. history, their knowledge of international relations. We took them and we beat out these two private schools. Uh, and it, it was incredible. And we have tons of stories like that. These kids were, we, we overcame the achievement gap um, in the United States. And so, you know, this really works with students who need it the most. Why? Because we are honor, honoring their past experiences. So if I were, as a social studies teacher, if I'm teaching authority and abuse of power, I can say, hey, can you think of a time in your life where someone was in an authority position and they, and they abused their power? These kids are, they're full of, of, of uh, examples of when people were in authority figures and they abused their power. And so it's really about when you, when you switch to concepts and the underlying structures of whatever it is you're trying to teach, you honor whatever students bring with you. So I think you, instead of looking at it from a deficit model, these kids can't. You got to stop. You got to erase that from your language, and you say to yourself, "What do these kids understand deeply? What do these kids um, know?" One of my favorite examples of that, from an opposite perspective, because that was in um, in a city in a big city in Washington D.C. Uh, I worked with a teacher in rural America, and she was trying to teach uh, students the periodic table of elements and the relationship between the the structure of of the element and the atoms and how they interact. You know, in in informs its its function. And so she said, okay, what, I'm gonna honor, I'm gonna try what Julie's saying, how do I honor what they already know? And she said, you know what? I'm gonna ask my kids, rural America, why wouldn't we go mud riding in a Prius? Why wouldn't we do that? Because the structure of the Prius does not match the function of mud riding. And so that's, that's the idea is just to say, what do our kids understand deeply? If they understand cars, they understand hunting, they understand uh, you know, farming. Um, one of the things I love to do when I go to, to places is think, what do these people really love? And so I work a lot in Alberta, Canada. So I went there, I presented to um, boards of trustees. And so these are people who are by and large are non-educators. They're farmers, they're maybe bankers. Um, and so I said, okay, I'm in, I'm in sort of, uh, this is the Association of Rural Education in, in Western Canada. I said, okay, guys, come up with, you know, five or six words about either farming or hockey and write them down. And, you know, they came, as a group, they worked at the table and they read, they chose either farming or hockey and they wrote down the words. And I said, put each word on a sticky note. And now, will you arrange those? Like, does one come first, one come second, one come third? Is one in the middle or others are all around them? And have a conversation about how that sort of field, farming or hockey, is organized. And they, it was an amazing activity. They were super engaged. They were super into it. And my point was that we can show students how mathematics is, is organized, how social studies is organized, how PE is organized, um, by looking at something that is, is close to home to whoever our audience is. 
Just, yeah, just keeping on, on that kind of subject, you've talked a lot about relating things to, to previous experiences and, and picking on things that children already know or already have some kind of knowledge at. And again, linking this to, to things that are happening in the world at the minute, there's a lot of prior knowledge that, that might be wrong or it might be miseducated. How do we unlearn some of that and unpick some of that and build it back up again? I'm so glad you asked that question because I didn't want to say this earlier and somehow I forgot. Um, so we have uh, the learning transfer cycle, basically. You sort of ask an abstract conceptual question and you take students through specific contexts. And so when I'm designing a, a sort of sequence of lessons, I want to make sure that the context increase in complexity, increase in sort of messiness, increase in noise from one situation to the next. So one example that I use is uh, that, that I have out for social emotional learning, I would encourage your listeners to try it out uh, to adapt it but it's a PowerPoint presentation you can download it, it has all the videos and everything in there but we talk about resilience or or growth mindset success failures and I start off with this 30 second video of a kid jumping on a stool I imagine I think I showed it at BSM when I was there um, imagine you guys have seen it so it's just a kid jumping on a stool and he keeps failing um, and then finally he gets it and man it does it feel good um, and so that's sort of very simple I want students to see that um, a very simple situation where the more failures you have, the sweeter success tastes. And then the next video is a little bit more complex. And then the next video is a little bit more complex. Eventually, I bring in, I'm pretty sure I showed this video at BSM as well. I bring in a video that's based, is, is based on identity. Students are facing all of these obstacles, either because they are poor or because of their religion or their gender or their race, um, and, or one, of, one kid has a disability. And so it's, it's like, okay, this is, <laughs> this is more complicated. Let's have a conversation about this. And so I think you can layer on the situations that have a little bit more complexity as you're transferring so that students come back to interrogate what they understood, to say, uh, what about this situation is it matches what I previously understood? So the sort of first step when you transfer is what's similar? And the second step is what's different? Um, how do I rethink re what it is that I understood in light of this more complex situation. Um, and so one thing that I did with that hockey farming one, I said, you know, how would new situations play out? And um, I was presenting the day before I say the wheels fell off in the Americas. I was presenting on March 12th um, in, in Alberta, Canada. And I said, okay, you did that whole thing with farming and, and hockey. Um, that this is an area, a region that's really dependent on oil. It's, an, it's a big oil region. And so I said, okay, oil prices have dropped. How does that impact farming and hockey? And they had a conversation about that. And then I say, okay, COVID-19, how's that gonna impact hockey and farming? And I mean, it's, it's enormous, but if you understand the structure of hockey, you understand the structure of farming, when you have a new crazy situation, that structure is what's able to let you sort of unpack the new crazy situation. Um, not the sort of surface features, but the, the underlying deeper structures that we call concepts and their relationships is what allows you to, to be able to transfer to that other situation, the more complicated situation. So again, taking it back from that specific context that is understood to then applying those same principles and transferring them to other things that, that are a little bit more complicated, a little bit more complex. 
That's right. And always being open to one of our favorite strategies is from uh, Harvard's Project Zero. I used to think, now I think. I used to think this. Mm. Now I think this. Uh, to specifically telling our students, here's my current thinking, here's my revised thinking. And what I try to do is model that, that like when I'm doing an all-day workshop, I'll say, you know what, teachers, I used to think this. Now I think this, um, showing that our thinking evolves. That's the hallmark of, of a wise person. You don't just, you know, one and done, you're, you're, you're finished, uh, you're learning. It's, it's revisiting what you thought you knew to, and tweaking it. Yeah, one of my biggest takeaways from when, when you came into BSM, Julie, was, was the misconceptions. And sometimes as teachers, we just presume that our students have a certain level of skill because they're 11 years old or they're 14 years old. And that was huge for me. And, and it was going back to, well, you only know what you know. Well, let's look at having some data or some, some pre-existing tasks that then sees where the kids are at. Uh, and I think that's really important. I mean, how do you plan that into to the, to the UBD to make sure that there's a this sort of a core task to begin with that tests understanding? That, that's excellent. Uh, you know, we talk about the importance of pre-assessment and starting with students pre-instructional understanding or misunderstanding, but a simple shift that I made um, was, so this is a modeling I used to think, now I think. I used to think, okay, what does I have to teach? And I'm going to break it down and sort of teach it in these chunks and sort of see where my kids are. Um, now I think, what are the transferable organizing ideas that are gonna help my kids navigate the world? That's sort of my question number one. My question number two is, okay, of that, what do my students and which of my students, because they're, they're not some you know, monolithic blob, uh, they're, they're different humans. And so what of my students and which of my students do they already understand, partially understand and misunderstand? And I ask myself that question when I'm starting the learning journey so that I can go in there to say, okay, here's what we're talking about guys. What do you understand about this? And the only way to sort of get it out of their heads is to write it or say it or show me with your body, of course, which works very well for PE. Um, but like, you gotta, you gotta show me. The students have to show or tell us what they understand. And when they do that, you can directly address the misunderstandings. I love that, that, that no presumption of what they already know. And it goes back to something you mentioned earlier about empathy and you can only see the world through your own eyes. And, and to, to have any kind of understanding through somebody else's takes a lot of empathy and a lot of questions. And, so often as teachers that we don't do that it doesn't happen you just presume that because they're in year seven or year nine or year 11 that they know x y and z and and you crack on without even asking them or without even giving them that chance to share what they know yeah definitely and i think it's about it's it's a tricky balance of starting from uh what do they already know and what do they maybe misunderstand but not sort of what are they lacking um i think that's a that's a simple shift in in thinking that has enormous impacts not like what are they behind in i i hate how people are talking about kids being behind and kids needing to catch up because of COVID 19. um what are our kids learning from this experience that we can harness you know i say to my kids all the time look you're little but somebody's going to say to you what were you doing in 2020 i'm like people are going to ask you what what were you doing in 2020 because this is going to go this year is going down in history for us at least a century or two um and so what what did what did kids learn when they were at home what did they learn and let's harness that and stop talking about how they're, they're behind and catch up and all this stuff very good point really good point i, I as parents we, we worry all oh, these they sat on the device too long they're not doing this they're not doing that and again maybe maybe the, there's positives that come out of it and certainly 
the work that Lewis and myself have done. This has been a massive positive of the of the whole epidemic. So yeah, I think that's a really good advice to to look on the positive side. We, we're just going to wind it in a bit, Julie, now, and we'll start with our quick fire questions at the end. And just tell us what book you're reading at the moment. That's a good starter. Yeah, so um, this book is called, the book that I'm reading right now is called, the nonfiction book I'm reading right now is called Essentialism, which is not, there's an, a thing about essentialism in philosophy that says, you know, it's basically like absolutism, that there are truths, and um, that is not what it's about. The, the, this book is about um, basically how to, how to cut out the noise and spend time on the things that, um, that matter the most. And certainly as a, as a mom with young kids and somewhat of an entrepreneur, uh, creative professional, it's important for me to say, okay, I'm invited to be on this podcast. Does that, does that move me towards my goals or does it not? And I'm going to say yes or no based on, you know, what, what my goals are. Um, and so I, I, I've been appreciating that. It was really easy to read, really, really uh, interesting book. I'm always reading sort of multiple books. I'm writing a book, so there's tons <laughs> of education books all around. Um, but uh, the other one is, is called Confederates in the Attic. And, you know, I'm really interested in, in race in the United States and what's going on. And I'm from the South. I'm from Louisiana. Um, I have uncles who still do this Confederate battle reenactment. Um, it's really both strange and interesting to me. Um, and so this journalist wrote a book about it. Uh, so that's another one that I'm reading. Yeah, oh, sounds, sounds a really interesting. <laughs> I love the, I love the essentialism. <laughs> Who's that by? Do we know? Oh gosh, that's so terrible. I usually know the author's names. Greg, 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 somebody. <laughs> yeah, sounds a great one for, for busy people. Um, Julie, what, what advice would you give to, um, to a young aspiring leader, teacher? Um, maybe they've just gone through their, their initial teacher training, that they've, they've had a year or two, or maybe that, you know, they're going into their first year of teaching after such a strange four months. What advice would you give to a, a young aspiring teacher and leader? That's a great question. Um, I think, you know, one thing I've learned about leadership is that you can be both really courageous and really humble uh, at the same time. And I think that's, that's essential. I think that, uh, for example, to admit that you are wrong, it, re it requires both courage and humility. Um, and so I think I try to, I try to sort of try hard, I work hard to, to embody um, both courage and humility. Um, and I think, you know, one thing that I'm seeing now that I'm 40, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sort of having this idea of, of honoring experience. And so, uh, you know, we all think we know everything in our 20s. And I think, you know, that idea that I'm ready to, to sort of take on the world now is, is uh, more pronounced in, in today's 20-year-old generation. And so I, I would say honor the, you know, bring your good ideas and find people who are, who, who are open to your good ideas. And at the same time, honor experience, honor the people who have been around um, and have learned quite a lot and try to be, uh, try to show respect for that experience. I think that's, that's important for young people. Yeah, you, you've certainly shown the humility today with the things that you've been talking about. You know, it's clear that you're not trying to preach. You're not trying to come across as if you know it all. You're very much on a journey yourself. And, and it just happens that you're way ahead of the vast majority of us. And you're, you're kind enough and courageous enough to share what you've learned so far. Oh, thanks. Uh, I feel like I preach because I'm so passionate about it. I'm like, this is serious, guys. <laughs> it feels preachy when it's coming out of my mouth. <laughs> well, I don't think it sounds it. Right, and the last one, Julie, we love this one. Uh, you're going out for a meal. Which three leaders in history, dead or alive, would you like to go out with? 
Oh my gosh, that's way too hard. That's amazing, <laughs> amazing question. Um, I just finished watching Harriet. I don't know if you guys have seen it, um, but Harriet Tubman, I mean, what a life. This woman escaped slavery, went back, I don't even know how many times, you know, there was a ransom on her head. I mean, just a life. I want to sit down with Harriet Tubman uh, and just talk up, just talk shop. Uh, what, uh, talk about courageous. Uh, I just can't even get over her life. I also uh, just finished watching um, Self Made about Madam C.J. Walker, who was the first sort of self-made female uh, millionaire in the United States. Some people like that, people who just, just super overcome incredible, incredible adversity, just keep going. Gandhi, Nelson Mandela. I mean, those are the people like even Jesus Christ. I, I mean, I want to sit down and, and have a meal um, with people who, who overcame just incredible adversity and just dedicated their lives um, to others, to justice and to, to making the world a better place. Yeah, I've got a cool picture of a young Nelson Mandela trying to jump on that young that that chair, that little chair, on that video that you showed mm, us, mm, and failing and mm. failing again. He got there eventually, didn't he? Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Brilliant, Julie. Love that. Thank you very much for coming on the show. And Lewis will will round it up. Yeah, thanks a lot, Julie. Really appreciate, appreciate your time and, and, and all the energy that you've given us there. And I've learned loads personally, and I'm sure everybody who's been listening will, will have many a takeaway and a few gems of wisdom that you've shared with us. So thanks very much. Awesome. Thank you guys so very much. Uh, guys, remember to search Infinite Leaders Live on YouTube and IGTV. We're also on all podcast platforms now, and uh, we're pleased to announce um, on www.theinfinitelearners.com all our webinars, articles and weekly journal notes will be updated and uh, we'll see you all next time. Thanks again Julie and see you soon. Cheers, Cheers, bye guys. Bye.